0: Uh, hey, guys, good morning. Good to be with you guys. I uh, how, Just out of curiosity, just to start, how, how many of you guys are the youngest of the siblings in your family? A lot of whistle- Wow, a lot of people with all kinds of broken needs. Uh, but I, um, <laughs> uh, you know, for those of you guys, my guess is in your house, you know, you watch your older siblings have, you know, like in photo albums, you have multiple photo albums of your oldest sibling, and then it sort of begins to diminish, and by the time they got to you, your parents, it's like a brochure, like... Yeah, here's, here's our other one. You know, like, <laughs> last night we dedicated my son, my other, I have three kids, and my, um, my oldest two, we, we, we dedicated them right around their, their first birthday, and we dedicated my son last night. He turns four in September, so <laughs> kind of on that same track. I also, just in listening to, <laughs> we have a brochure about him, too. Um, we might name him someday, too, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we, as 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 John was talking about having a, a fourth a fourth kid, I reminded of the comedian Jim Gaffigan, who he has four kids and he's describing. He goes, "If you want to know what having four kids is like, it's like imagine you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby." <laughs> so I just think that's the blessing we want you guys to have, and some of the other people in here already know that, and so. Okay, where am I? Uh, hey, you guys, we're in a series called Dear God. We've been looking at the way that Jesus instructs his disciples to pray. And well, I always forget this. So if you are a Bible passer-outer person, would you just start doing that right now? Because I'm going to forget, and then we'll be praying, and you'll have that awkward, like, we'll have to wait before I can... we're praying right now. I'll just... I... I got you. Just wait. You know, like, so in order to avert that crisis, if you want a Bible to read, to like look in, you don't want to just follow it on the screen, you don't have a digital sort of version of the Bible, you actually need to hold one. People will hand one to you. You can raise your hand, and they'll give one to you. Anyway, we're looking at this series called Dear God, and uh, Jesus is sort of instructing his disciples how to pray. And he gives them this model. In Luke 11, they ask him, they actually say to Jesus, you know, how are we supposed to pray? And he gives them a version of this prayer we're going to read. And then in, in Matthew 6, where we are, you actually get him kind of talking about prayer in contrast to a couple other ways people pray at that time. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Who want everybody to see them? don't go out you know kind of the street corner and kind of have her you know they look at me i'm praying look how wonderful i am so don't be like those guys he says, go and pray to your father in secret and then he says don't be like the the pagans who just insist on babbling on and on as if god won't hear them until they really kind of say the right words or they maybe they can manipulate god into doing stuff so don't pray like those guys he said instead pray to our father we talked about the idea of this uh this prayer that Jesus instructs his disciples in this prayer, if you grew up in another tradition you might have called it the our father prayer it's most often called the Lord's Prayer but this isn't just a prayer that sort of as although it has become this it isn't a prayer for like we said grandma to sort of needlepoint and put in. yes exactly it hasn't become sort of one of those things that we sort of needlepoint and then put in the guest bedroom and go isn't that a sweet little prayer what we've actually said is that this prayer is a revolutionary kind of prayer That it's a subversive prayer. It's a prayer that indicates a desperation for the world to be made different. And we talked last week about how the idea of our Father, even saying the word Father, the first time God is self-identified as Father in the Bible is as the one who liberates people from captivity. And so this is kind of where we start our prayer, that the Father, our Father, this new level of inclusion for us, ...in which Jesus only one time in the book of Matthew... ...uses the phrase, our Father, is in this prayer... ...that we'd be included in this sort of new intimacy in life with God. (laughs) All right, he's not going to cut it. She's out. Yeah, he's out. Yep, you tried. Uh, Sorry, there's a little incident over here. Um, But Before we jump into today's message... ...would you join me as we pray... ...that God will reveal himself in some ways... um, in ...in this space, in this time. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, as there are many things sort of going on, things that we're concerned about, our, our life, our busyness, all of that stuff, um, we commit that right now we will be unable to do those things. That in this, in just this brief moment, that we're wildly inefficient for you. Or well, for some of us in the room who have uh, some questions or are new to sort of experiencing who you are, A lot of us, maybe, who are in that place would say, God, you feel incredibly distant, and I would believe you if you were more near to me. God, I pray you would reveal yourself to those in that situation. God, would you bring tenderness? Would you bring your presence in such a way that people are made aware of it? God, would you challenge us to understand you today as one who is holy, as we've been singing? Holy, holy, holy. Lord, we pray above all things that you would be made known and that your love would be made more tangible in this place. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, Well, if you want, if you did have a Bible, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6. I want to show you the prayer. We're going to come back to this at the end of the service as we pray it. But I just want to show you what we're talking about, this prayer that Jesus has explained to his disciples about how to pray. It's in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. And this is, this is what, like I said before, is what is called the Lord's Prayer. So here's what it looks like. We'll, we don't have to say it together. I just want to give you a sense of what it is, and we'll, we'll pray it later. Uh, but here's what it is. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Like I said, last week we talked about this idea of God being our Father. Now, this is kind of a unique sort of inclusion into the intimacy with God that we talk about, the one who would liberate us from captivity. And this week what I want to do is we don't get any really that much further in this prayer. We only want to get to the next phrase, which is in heaven. Now when we talk about heaven, there are all kinds of crazy sort of understandings. No one's really sure, you know, no, but there's all kinds of these sort of things we don't know what to do with. Uh, uh, some people, when we talk about heaven, if you ask people to draw a picture of it or something, they imagine sort of people in togas, uh, and they're sort of riding escalators between clouds, and they're kind of in this harp warehouse where it's like, uh, you know, they're, everybody sort of magically knows how to play harps. You know, we sort of have this vision from Dante or Michelangelo about what that looks like. Others of us, if you ask, you know, what's heaven all about? A lot of us would say, well, it's kind of the fulfillment of every single desire I ever would have wanted on the earth. You know, like, well, I always wanted to have a big beach house with a view, and I'd have a killer barbecue right there and a pool at the beach, because why wouldn't you? And I'd have jet skis and a boat. And you just sort of have this, like, over-the-top, everything I ever would have wanted. I remember when, I, when we were in, I was like a seventh grader, and we were talking about my little small group. We were talking about, what's, you know, of course, this probably wasn't the topic we were supposed to be talking about. But I was like, what's heaven going to be like? And I'm sure our small group leaders were like, <laughs> whatever, we'll just go down this road. And so we start talking about heaven, and the conclusion we could come to as 12- and 13-year-olds about what heaven was all about was that essentially it was a multiple-day-long water slide. (laughs) This is right at the time when Wild Rivers, you know, was sort of just being built, if I remember correctly. It was like right around that time we're like, this is the greatest thing ever. And it's going to be lots of, we're going to be a couple days just going down the slide, and then it will flatten out after we're like hungry or whatever. And then there will be like a cooler of sandwiches and orange crush, and we'll just be like, woo, sandwiches, and then more slide. And, you know, it's like... We had, in, we had to envision this whole idea of what heaven was like, which is really the sort of fulfillment of a 12-year-old sort of desire. The term heaven itself, even as we turn it into an adverb, describes all kinds of things. Have you tried this ice cream? It is heavenly. You know, the, uh, you know I, it was cold, and then I jumped into the jacuzzi, and oh, heaven. I mean, you just sort of have this sort of idea about what heaven is all about. Most people would say that, you know, the most popular consistent understanding would be about heaven would be, well, this is the place you go where you're dead. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you, you know, when you're dead, you go there. And, and, you know, this is the eternal life that Jesus is always talking about. This is where it sort of takes place. This eternal life, this everlasting life takes place there. And I wonder as Jesus is talking in this prayer, is this what he's really talking about? Sort of water slides and harps and the life when you're dead? Or is he talking about something that has way more to it? That there's something far greater than the sort of popular understanding about heaven when he says, pray like this, to our Father in heaven. If you want to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first time heaven is mentioned, it says this. It's page 1 of your Bible if you're looking for it. Uh, It says this. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the word heaven is never mentioned singularly. It's always as a plural. And it's so it's always the heavens. Even if you see it as heaven, it's always the heavens. And there's a couple things you've got to know. First is this, that because it's plural, it has a number of different definitions based on the context. Sometimes heaven is referring to, like, atmosphere or air or sky or, you know, where the stars are. And other times it's referring to the sort of non-material realm. And what we tend to believe is that that realm is really far away. What what we know from Genesis 1 is this. Heaven and earth are mentioned separately because they're not the same thing. And yet, they're much closer than we might have imagined. Wherever the earth touches the sky, there's this commingling spheres of reality. Like I said, in the sort of Hebrew understanding, the ancient Near East, it wasn't like heaven was galaxies away, way far up in the sky. It was something different than that. Some way or another, the divine reality of God in heaven is bleeding into this world. Which is to say, well, I, I, I'm reading this. way, I'm doing a bunch of research for this message. And I'm looking at a systematic theology book, just looking through some stuff. And one of the things it says, I'm looking at this one particular scholar's sort of impression of heaven... And the very first sentence is, heaven is wherever God's presence is. And I went, wow. It begs the question then for us, where is God's, present, God's presence not? In other words, God is everywhere. Wherever God is, somehow, in other words, there's no God-forsaken place on the entire planet. Some of you are like, that's not true. I have been to the DMV. <laughs> a lot of us if God sort of speak is if God art in heaven if God is in heaven then he's also right here. A lot of us especially if you if you kind of grew up having some wrestling with sort of God stuff in your life there probably a lot of us had adopted sort of a superman mythology about God. Now I'm not a comic book person I don't know a ton about superman but superman is an alien who's strikingly handsome and really buff and wears blue tights. And he shows up on the earth through a you know, series of accidents, and there he is on the earth. And he, you know, he disguises himself as this handsome but fumbling sort of reporter person. And then, but when he's, where, where he lives is this place far off, this sort of crystalline palace in the North Pole called the Fortress of Solitude. That in some way he gets alerted to the presence of danger, people are in need of help, and here he comes, flying in or whatever, lands, deals with the bad guys, all right, America, justice, whatever, and he flies back to wherever he's supposed to go, waiting again to be sort of unbothered by stuff. And my guess is even if we kind of thought that was ridiculous, there's probably a lot of us that go, I guess that's how I do kind of think of God, that he's in his palace, far away, and every so often he might kind of swoop in and help certain people. Sometimes he chooses not to help certain people, but there he is doing his thing, far away, and then he kind of shows up every once in a while. But maybe Jesus is talking about something different than that sort of perception of heaven and where God dwells, that God in heaven is more so than a location of all things. Maybe this idea of God in heaven, our Father in heaven, has a lot to do with his character and his power. That God, the one Jesus is praying to, his own father, our father, isn't like the other ancient gods, who are mostly upset at human beings if they're ever involved in them at all. Like, human beings are there, but they're kind of a hassle, and so they're just kind of hanging out wherever they are, Mount Olympus or wherever these guys are hanging out, and then, oh, those humans are kind of driving us crazy. Go down there and punish them, and then come back up here. That's not what's being described here. Apparently, our father is more interested in human affairs than the other gods of the time of Jesus. Even the most sort of cutting-edge philosophers of the time, the two schools of thought, are the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans have a belief about God, that is to say, God may have gotten everything going. He's some kind of prime mover, and yet he's far removed, and he doesn't care about anything. It's what we call deism. That is to say that God is so distant that he might as well not even exist. And then you have the Stoics who are on the complete other end of the spectrum. Which is to say that God is in everything. He's everywhere. Everything is itself an emanation or or a presentation of God's divinity. And it's all around us. And because God is in everything, you begin to have a watered down, powerless God. Who is so near to us in a broken world. We kind of wonder if he's really existing at all. And Jesus has a framework for which he's praying To our God in heaven, our Father in heaven, who is neither of those things. If you want, you can turn to Exodus 33. We'll get there in just one second. But God is neither uncaring and distant, nor is is he sort of merged with everything in our reality. And Jesus says in this prayer, pray like this, to our Father in heaven. So what is he talking about? In Exodus 30, there's a lot of ways you could talk about heaven and what Jesus is meaning here. Here's one way to sort of take a look at it. In Exodus 33, verse 7. Now, Exodus, I should say, this is is the time when all of the Israelites are wandering in the desert. They've left Egypt, the land of captivity, for 400 years. And they're walking into what is known as the promised land. And there's all kinds of sort of meetings with God that they have over various things. And this is kind of one particular meeting... ...in which is sort of what kind of idea what you get in a second here. Verse 33, or sorry, Exodus 33, verse 7. Here's kind of how Moses meets with God. Here's what it says. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp... ...some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting... ...outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent... ...all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents... ...watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent... The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while Moses, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Let me stop right there. There is a tent to which God would meet with Moses. And when the people are wandering in the desert so they know where to go, there's a pillar of cloud that they follow during the day. And at night, when they couldn't see the pillar of cloud, it was illuminated by fire. So they're following a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And this is saying when Moses went into the tent of meeting, a pillar of cloud showed up right there. God's presence known in a powerful manifestation right there. Verse 10. When the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses. Listen to this. You might underline this. Face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of none, did not leave the tent. Now, I remember the first time that I read this, it blew me away. Because the wording is so, not only is God face to face with Moses, there's this other little phrase modifier in there, as a man speaks to his friend. There's a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, there's all kinds, and then there's this face to face conversation, as a man speaks to his friend. My impression of God in the wilderness with these people, his own people, his children, was sort of like, I guess you could say kind of like a captain of a a cruise ship or or maybe even like a a pilot that he would sort of turn on the PA every so often and kind of talk to people. Hey, everybody, this is the Lord. I could have your attention really quickly. Uh, Let's see, we've just set out and uh, it looks like it'll be about 250 miles as the crow flies. (laughs) But uh, we're gonna might take a few extra routes in there. Uh, It Could take us a little longer. To your left is Mount Sinai. Also, want to give you a, a little uh, update on our menu options. Uh, we'll be serving manna, uh, that comes from heaven. Uh, you're welcome. And for those of you on a uh, gluten-free diet, we also have manna. And those of you selecting the vegetarian option, manna. Uh, but uh, just want to let you know, you might want to enjoy get, get those enjoy your hike, and it's one of the things we're offering today is hiking. And uh, just want to let you know, we'll be walking for a little greater distance, we might have thought. So enjoy. This is the captain. And that's it. Like, that's how I imagine, in some way this is how God spoke to his people. That there was some way he'd sort of make a PA announcement and tell everybody what to do. I guess we're hiking today. More manna. Sweet. You know, like, this is kind of the way I imagined he would talk to people. Only in this instance, what you see in Exodus 33 is that God's meeting with a person, Moses in particular, face-to-face as a man... Speaks to his friend. God in heaven, meeting with Moses face to face as a man, speaks to his friend. Go ahead and flip to Exodus 40. God is close. He is among us and with us. And yet God is somehow not. He's, a, he's like this pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud. In the scholarly world, the way that they describe this, this sort of phenomenon is in two words. Transcendence and imminence. Transcendent meaning that God is so beyond and so other than and yet imminent in that he's so incredibly close and among. So you have a pillar of fire that's very much not like us. And yet he's speaking face to face. Imminent. Some of you, the, the sort of simpler term to sort of describe this is the terms near and far. And I want to give you just a quick glimpse of, in case some of you are unclear about what that might look like. Here's a Bible scholar from 1975. I want you to just sort of see him talk about it real quick. Hello there, this is your old pal Grover. Mm -hmm. And today I'm going to talk to you about near and far. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, little furry Grover, am going to show you near and far. Mm -hmm. Okay, he does that for two and a half minutes, back and forth, same over and over and over again. Now, how many of you guys remember that, by the way? You actually saw that on TV? Yes, my brothers and sisters. Okay, now, uh, there's 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 a little limitation to this idea. I mean, it it, it captures it at least roughly, but the limitation is, you know, it's still kind of, I mean, we still kind of get the idea of near and far, but the transcendent idea is that there's something sort of beyond, something other than us. And yet the nearness, the sort of imminence, is this idea that is right here. So when Jesus is praying our Father in heaven, there's this kind of commingling of near and far. Transcendence and imminence. Exodus 40 verse 1 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle. Tabernacle is the mobile worship center. It is the, it is the temple until the temple is built for the people who belong to God. The tabern- only this time he gives the tabernacle a new name, the tent of meeting. Now it was once applied to Moses it's applied to everybody. This is where you will worship God. And what he is saying here is that God, who is repeatedly throughout the Bible, is, his desire is to live, to dwell among his people. And it is in the tent of meeting that he'll do so. So he says, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the month. Now, skipping ahead, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is where we get the word Shekinah or Shekinah not sure how it's pronounced. This idea of God's glory occupying this place. In all the travels of the Israelites whenever the cloud lifted above from above the tabernacle they would set out but if the cloud did not lift they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. God's glorious presence made known among the people. They don't, it is God's glorious presence who guides them, and it is God's presence who meets with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends. Is this tent, we're gonna talk more about this next week too, by the way, but is this tent kind of a separate deal than all the other ordinary tents? Yes. Is, 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 it, is this tent also, while it's separate, is it also among the people? Yes. Is God really near with his own people choosing to dwell among them? Yes. And yet is he somehow far, transcendent, other than them? Yes. It's this ...kind of idea of heaven where God dwells... ...that is the backdrop for Jesus' prayer about where he is... ...for our Father in heaven. There is a reality of heaven in our midst. Not the fortress of solitude super far away. A a while ago, a couple years ago, we are on this pastor's retreat. Some guy had hosted us in this unbelievable cabin in the woods... And it's, it's so it's so unbelievable that he's like his only neighbor, like there's nobody else out there. Like, it, people are like, where'd you guys go? I'm like, I, I honestly don't know. I, I, it, it was in Narnia. I, I don't know how to tell people where it is. But we're in this cabin, and because there's nobody else around, I mean, literally, for miles and miles, you can't see another house from his house. And we're in the woods. There's this, which, by the way, is sort of the setting for, a, like, a really scary movie. This is like, oh, we're all by ourselves. No one knows where you are. That's weird. You know, like okay you know but we're out in this wilderness and one night he goes hey everybody I want you guys to come outside and and not everybody goes but a couple of us are like okay we'll go outside he goes I'm gonna turn off all the lights and the you know our little with little it's like it's this massive house in this compound he's like I'm gonna turn off all the lights and we're like okay is that really wise there's no no one here I mean it's like this kind of little bit of fear but also kind of what's this going to be like turns off all the lights never in my life have I been in a darker thicker blackness of night the stars are just absolutely, I mean, I've never seen, I did not, did not even know there were that many stars. And then he says, as, you know, as I also have lots of experience with these, he goes, anyone um, uh, want to try these night vision goggles? I'm like, oh, yeah, I got those for walking my dog in Irvine all the time. Yeah, we need those. So obviously I got a few of those. So I've never worn night vision goggles. And he's like, you know, you know, not you put these on? So everybody's taking a turn trying these things out. And, you know, I put them on, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I could totally use these, you know, walking around, taking my trash out. <laughs> you know, hey, everybody, how's it going? Oh, didn't see it. you know. But I, I'm imagining how cool, and I'm looking at everybody, and, of course, they have sort of the, if you guys, I, I know not a lot of you have looked into night vision goggles, but some of you have, and you're just, don't brag about that. It's kind of nerdy. But, um, but I'm looking at people's eyes, and in people's eyes it has that sort of, Almost like the red eye effect in a camera, but it, it's just—it's just clear. It's like a—they it, look a little bit evil, and so I'm like, "Can you guys just back up a little bit for me? Because I got this vision goggles." on? And I'm looking around, looking at stuff, looking at trees. You can see animals that you were just—you're like, "Wow, there's—they're right here." And so I look over, looking around, and there, all of a sudden, about 400 yards in the distance, is just a dude. No idea. Did you guys know there's a? Hey, can we turn the lights back on? This is um. There's a there's a guy over there, and. and I have the total reaction of, oh my gosh, I'm totally scared. I had no idea he was there. And there's a guy who's part of our group who's a couple hundred yards that way. who was obviously annoyed by us who are ruining his sort of starlit night or whatever by himself. But he's over there by himself, and I had no idea he was there. He was there the whole time. I think in so many ways what Jesus is saying here isn't that God is galaxies away, and he might come to rescue you, but he's saying in the sort of farness, the transcendence is to say that he's not, he's not us like we would think of, and yet he's right here. We just usually aren't aware of him here. Near and far. This understanding of this kind of God reality for the people who belong to God is one in which we kind of have to hold in a dynamic tension. It is to say, even to describe it, I would say this, by the way, too, about this message. This isn't one that will wrap up in a neat little bow, that you know, a little package you can just put in your pocket. It will, it's going to leave a few things open. And I would say, it, probably an indicator of something that's sort of good in a message is something that stimulates more conversation. But this is the tension that the faithful people have to live with. Imminence, right here, and transcendence, not us. For God to be in heaven is to say, among other things, that he's not subject to the ways and powers and systems of the world. Which is to say that he is not subject to sort of bribery and intimidation and fear and grudges or manipulation, that he is not involved in any kind of politics because our Father who is in heaven is somehow beyond the the geographical sort of gods of the ancient world. That he is for all people, because he's not bound to a location or to a race. This notion of near and far, this transcendence and imminence, it's precisely what Jesus embodies in himself. It is what we celebrate at Christmas, what we call the incarnation. That is to say that God would take on flesh and walk among us. The prophet Isaiah has the words describing Jesus' name as as the name Emmanuel, which is to say God with us, God among us. Whatever God was in the temple for the people is now embodied in Jesus. Jesus, totally unaffected, without sin... Amid all the temptation, intimidation, bribery, threats of violence against him in his own life, he was very clearly other than. And yet never was there a person so connected to the suffering in this world, a person who had so much compassion for people who were in the world, often he's called the king of beggars, whores, and thieves because of the company that he kept. Now imagine the sort of beautiful irony in this picture. Jesus is instructing his disciples how to pray. He is the very picture of this kind of transcendence and imminence. He's right there with them. And then he says, pray like this, to our Father in heaven. Now, our Father, just to remind you, is at least one of the things in which sort of has with it this idea of the, the cultural idea of fatherhood, is that the children would take on the trade of their own father. In other words, they're apprenticed to their father. And this father, the one to whom his children, our father, the one who, to whom we're apprenticed, is in heaven. And I want to frame that for you in a couple different ways, and then we're going to close in some prayer. But here's what it looks like. The Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3. You don't have to turn that. I'll just put it on the screen. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when, when I grew up, or I should say, even as I was growing up, there was this understanding for me about what it meant to be a citizen of heaven that had mostly to do with this. That the responsibility of the church was two things. One was to be ready to wait that when someday the king would come, we would just be swept away off of the, you know, that we just disappear. That our great the great thing that God would do for us is take us out of here. And the other thing was this, that somehow the idea of citizenship of heaven meant that the church should sort of build a fortress and isolate itself from the rest of the world such that nobody else could ever get in there and that there would be no sort of commingling with the rest of the world. In the ancient world, when a king would come, an emperor would visit a town or a city, people would rush out, line the streets, ...and greet the king, and they would bring the king into the town. No one expected in the ancient world when they would run out to be part of the king... ...were citizens of this other place, like if the Roman emperor was to come... ...were citizens of Rome, for instance, they wouldn't expect them, the emperor would come in... ...and they would say, well, we're ready for you to take us out of here. The idea would be that they, through their own announcement to their own life would bring the full picture of the king into view for the rest of the town, the rest of the city. It's the same thing that's happening here. In other words, that this idea of transcendence and imminence of our father, the one to whom we're apprenticed, is the way in which we ought to live. It is to say that we're not subject to the world, but yet we're also not ones who would depart from it. We, the ones who would pray to our father, are near and far there's a gravitation toward the world without being enveloped by it to frame it another way this is just really quickly in Luke 18 a, a, a man comes to Jesus some of you might know the story and says hey what do I got to do here's I'll just show it to you verse 18 so this, a certain ruler asked him good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life now a lot of us have this understanding that what he's asking is how do I go to heaven when I die that is such a tiny tiny slice of what he's asking what he's actually asking is in the same sense of the sort of citizenship of heaven. He's actually asking, how do I participate in the eternal kind of life now? And Jesus tells him, well, here's what you've got to do. You've you got to follow these commandments. I did that. And then you've got to sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. And the man went away sad because he had many possessions. The man was willing to be near to the world. And yet there was this sense of, I want to be a citizen of, I want to be a citizen. Of, I want to participate in the eternal life. Well, that's going to mean you're going to have to break some things that sort of have a grip on you in this world, too. And he went away sad. We live in the tension, the dynamic tension of nearness to the world and yet distance from it, transcendence, too. What I want to do is this. I'm going to give you, I'm going to walk you through kind of a prayer exercise, and like I said, a lot, of, a lot of what we would want to do in this message will be kind of taken care of in the next couple of weeks, but I just want to walk you through a prayer exercise that identifies the nearness and the transcendence of God. So would you pray with me, and then we'll, we'll walk through this a little bit. And so I'm going to walk you through a couple of the questions and then give you a couple of ideas what that looks like. So just in your own, the quietness of your own heart, you might sort of talk with God about this. For some of us in here, we need to complete this sentence, all of us in some way. Because God, our Father, you are far transcendent beyond holy, fill in the blank. In other words, let me walk you through. God, because you are holy... Because there is a desire in you to free us from captivity, to free me from captivity, would you identify the things for me in my own life that are holding me captive? God, would you call out the things to me that are somehow too married and enveloped in the world itself? God, I want to live as a citizen of heaven. Who was rescued by your undying grace? What is it in my life, Jesus, that is in my heart, that is not tuned to you? Secondly, Because, our Father, you are near. Fill in the blank. In other words, because, God, you are unending in your tender, loving compassion and forgiveness, I need to be reminded in these ways that you would hold me like a child that you are not off in the fortress of solitude, that you are right here. What is it about God's nearness that you need to remember that you have forgotten? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you, who teach us how to pray to our Father, is near and far with us, transcendent and imminent. God, that we would be people who live, it's our desire to live, God, as people who are citizens of heaven, not disengaged from the world, but God, bringing your full story, your full image into view. God, we wanna live as though the reality of heaven is as it is right here among us, that there is overlapping spheres of heaven and earth. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be people who live as citizens of heaven. And as we pray our father who is in heaven. Amen.